Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. So, hello, hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Uh, hello, Professor David. Thanks so much for joining IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please first introduce yourself and how you would like to define yourself? Um, uh, my name is Dr. David Boyce. I'm a, a teacher of physics at Uppingham School in the United Kingdom. Yeah. So how you would like to define yourself? How would I define myself? I'm a, yeah. um, a person with a research background in astrophysics. So um, my doctorate was involved in looking at um, ultraviolet light of distant yeah. white dwarf stars across the, the galaxy to try to determine the, um, the gas that is in between the stars and find a, yeah. um, a kind of meaning for that. Um, my background itself is in cosmology. So my degree and um, all of my uh, interests lie in the very big questions about science, like mm-hmm. how did it all begin? Um, what are the processes that have been um, yeah. at work all this time to create a universe that we see today? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I'd like to go back when you were a child. Do you have any memories about being interested in science or technology as a kid? Any memories about that? Well, I think I went through that very usual route of uh, liking yeah. dinosaurs. I think yeah. there's a particular kind of child that gets absolutely hooked on dinosaurs. And then with that interest, because they're very accessible, you can go into the library as it was then. It's probably online now, but you'd go in and you'd find that there were these names of different dinosaurs and something really powerful yeah. about just having that little bit of knowledge. You know, you know the names of all of the dinosaurs and um, and I think that's a very affirming thing to feel like you know things. Mm-hmm. And um, from my liking of dinosaurs, I got to that age, probably when I was leaving primary school, where I thought about, you know, what, what would I like to do when I'm older? And yeah. of course, uh, thinking about dinosaurs uh, led me to think about the way in which the dinosaurs then died out and, you know, a comet hitting yeah. the earth. And, and that top trumped it for me because I then thought that space was better than dinosaurs. Yeah. And uh, so I started an interest in space that has uh, taken me um, through my A-levels uh, to university. And yeah. I think that's very interesting. I remember, uh, I think, in the era of Cretaceous, I think, age, mm-hmm. the, if you can tell a story, maybe someone could be interested how they uh, extended the dinosaurs. Because that, that's maybe, I think, an interesting story, if you can share. Ah, well, um, absolutely. Now, in the Cretaceous period, 65 million years yeah. ago, it was very different to how it is now. And there was dinosaurs walking around. The early mammals uh, were present. So the, the, the things that we still see today, like small mice, um, rodents, that sort of thing, were present, yeah. as were things that we would recognize in, our, in the world today. Crocodiles, turtles, lizards, they were all there fish in the seas, as well as some of the more unusual things. And then uh, towards the end of the age of the dinosaurs, we think it was more of a case of um, not one killer blow, but there were multiple things that went wrong altogether. And that's the thing with disasters. It's normally a string of bad events. And there had been, uh, there had been quite a lot of climate change that was caused by volcanoes at the time. And so it had weakened the ecosystem generally. But then the killer blow came 65 million years ago where a comet hit the earth um, 
around the present day Mexico. So a place called um, Chicxulub. There's a, a buried crater that we've now been able to detect. And that, that comet um, hit the Earth with a huge amount of velocity and a very large amount of mass, imparting so much energy into the atmosphere that it basically created worldwide forest fires and everything that was above the ground couldn't survive. So all of the larger animals, they, they died out. And the key characteristic of those animals that could survive was their ability to burrow or hibernate. So things like alligators, they lay their eggs in the sand, uh, um, they make nests, uh, mm -hmm. so do turtles. But things like rodents, they all hide underground and can hibernate. And certain birds like puffins and, and things like that, they dig little yeah. holes and nests for themselves. So uh, all of those animals that could get below ground, they did get below ground and um, they were able to, to survive. Uh, and, and from that, 65 million years ago, it kind of wiped the slate clean. It gave new opportunities for all kinds of animals on planet Earth to, to uh, you know, reposition themselves and spread into those niches that would have been left unoccupied by the dinosaurs. And for us, it was our um, opportunity as mammals to spread and uh, to fill the world as we are today. Mm -hmm. I think that's very interesting because I'm asking this question because even soft robotics, when we design, for example, I don't know if you get familiar with like well, soft robots like octopus, for example. And when we look to this creature, how they adapt to different environment and how they evolve, as you mentioned, as an example, how they can change their morphology and adapt their behavior according to the environment. Do you think we understand the physics of, um, of everything happening around us, for example, in this creature, how they evolved in this way over these years. How do you see that level of understanding we have for physics? Because I think physics is important, you know, when you try to model everything, which level of understanding you want to have? And, and sometimes if you neglect the physics, sometimes you don't answer the real question. So how do you see how we understand physics and how it's a correlation to everything around us, especially engineering? I think there's a lot of a struggle between physics and engineering. And you know what I mean? This is kind of- I know what you mean. So yeah. I think that um, with the development of physics, uh, it's been a journey that has, that has taken us on this, this um, path for thousands of years. And it really started with the very first people um, looking up at the night sky and wondering why and wondering what that is. And of course, there were those uh, questions that are very much a case of trying to explain the things around them. Why, why does the sun go red when it's going close to the horizon? Why is, do we have nighttime? What causes the seasons? Um, there is advantage in having that kind of knowledge, understanding what time of year it is enables you to get that head start agriculturally and you can apply the knowledge of smelting various metals together to form weapons and tools. And so it's always been advantageous for us to understand the world around us. Because um, physics sits in that interesting place that some of, the, some of the ideas that we have, some of the theories that we have are, are just interesting to us when we first discover them. And only later we find that they have application. So the discovery of the electron, which is the particle that causes electricity, when it was first discovered, J.J. Thompson had no idea what it was for or what it could do. And he famously held this toast when he got all of his friends around and he held a toast at the dinner party and said, uh, to the electron, may it be of no use to anybody. And he foresaw that he didn't think that there was any value in it particularly. Yeah. Interesting. But of course, now all of modern day electronics, all electricity, all circuits, all robotics and uh, space and aeronautics, 
all come from an understanding of what electrons are doing in wires. So you can see that the, the power of it is immense, but we don't always recognize it at the time. Yeah. Going back to your original question, I think there's a really interesting thing. Have we really discovered all of it? I think we have in, in a certain, um, well, we, we kind of have. I think we've discovered the things that are obvious to us with our senses. We live at this scale, approximately midway on the sort of length scale of the universe. If you think how much smaller atoms are compared to us, well, that's how much bigger the universe is compared to us. We sit right in the middle and we're very much aware and familiar with things that happen on our scale. So we're familiar with um, things moving and leaves falling off trees and you know we are familiar with the things that happen on our scale and we have these little windows in the world which enable us to see things at larger scales we have these devices like telescopes that enable us to see the large scale microscopes going smaller electron microscopes smaller still but there are whole sections of this scale that we have no instruments to probe mm -hmm. um, particle accelerators for the very very small but there are gaps and we can only take the information that those particular devices can record for us. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've been thinking about is whether or not are we missing something. Now we are almost, um, our awareness is uh, very strong for those things that are obvious to us, being uh, mammals that have vision and hearing. Mm -hmm. We very quickly understood light and sound. But are there things out there that we just have not noticed that are actually really important to the workings of the universe? Would an alien species with completely different senses and completely different brain have actually noticed something that was there all along hiding in plain sight? Mm -hmm. So I think all of the obvious physics, physics that is obvious to us, has yeah. been seen, but it's the physics in those places hard to see and the physics that is unobvious that is out there to explore and so what we need in science is people that don't think in a mainstream kind of way we need the the people that are really imaginative really creative that mm. they're you know the people that come up with the wacky ideas the ideas that other people would dismiss because it's yeah. in those ideas that we're actually encountering um new thinking so within physics generally we're trying to encourage the widest participation that we can I think that's very interesting, but I would like to pick the, first, the last part when you say that we need people who have wiki idea and imagination. <clears throat> I think when you look, I looked your tweet feeds, I think you have like a, I'm missing this kind of, you know, making science more fun. And I'm trying, you have this soul that you want to make it more fun in an interesting way. But when I look to academia, I think that's something we discuss all the time. How do you see the progress maybe in physics? Of course, we ask about robotics, and, but I think physics is also important because we know there are many science like um, have discussion about how the field is going and what is the theory of everything. I don't know if you know Professor Brian Keating, he's doing this podcast and, but, and discussing this kind of subject. How, how do you see um, academia now? Uh, and what you mentioned that we need people who have imagination and having new ideas because when I'm looking to like uh, Isaac Newton or this example like that, how they have this kind of great ideas at this ages and still we don't have this kind of mentalities nowadays. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but what's your thought about the progress of physics and why we don't have this kind of, why we're we missing this kind of personality as a scientist and make science really about curiosity, not about application only or ego driven. I don't know what you thought about that. 
Well, I, I think that um, I think there is an, there is an element of uh, training that goes into yeah. producing a physicist. So you will have to have um, you know a development in your mathematics. You'd have to uh, learn all about the, the same sort of standard things about electricity, about mechanics, um, and, and such like. So there is a process that uh, a person could go through, and yeah. that process really should. Uh, hope to develop a person in their physics skills without changing the person. Yeah. And I think what we can do as teachers that is really important is to, to get people that, that are very different from the stereotype and, and put them into the mix to encourage them to do physics. They will have to go through that training, but hopefully the, the physics training with that originality of thinking is going to be something that would be really useful uh, when they become researchers later on. Um, I think physics, it is fun. And I think the people that really, really enjoy doing it um, are, uh, you know, they're, they're people that should be encouraged. And, and I think that is one of the, the main things that, that can be done in an educational environment is to encourage, to, to make people um, be, you know, completely relaxed about demonstrating their enthusiasm for something. And I think one of the things that has really changed in academia, ac academia always will be... Uh, slightly guarded, slightly formal, um, my learning versus yours. And the whole idea of a PhD defense sounds like you're going into battle, all very, very serious sort of stuff. And, um, and certainly uh, the rivalries between scientists, for example, it's um, things get taken very personally. Um, and it, it's kind of a product of when people put 100% into something, um, they, they then cannot face critique of that thing because it feels so personal because their whole life force is in their work. And if their work comes under attack, they come under attack. And it can make people, yeah, defensive, serious. It can make people um, very cautious. Uh, yeah. But what I think is changing at the moment is there's a new breed of scientists out there that are referred to as like science communicators. People that their particular specialism um, isn't just their academic work. It's their desire, their enthusiasm, and their ability to communicate what they're doing, not just to other scientists, but to the masses. And I think that science has always got to be relevant to people. And there always needs to be people that can explain the relevance to the general population. So where is academia at the moment? I think parts of it are exactly where it was, um, yeah. but I think it's very hopeful at the moment that we're seeing some fantastic science communicators um, that are there and are actually, they're role modeling what it means to be a scientist for the future generation. And I think that it's much more likely that the pupils that we have in schools are gonna see the science communicators and idolize that, that um, uh, you know, they're going to idolize that that is what science means. That's what it means to be a scientist is those visible science communicators. And I think with time, those invisible scientists that, you know, don't particularly go out there and um, want to communicate their work to the masses, um, they, I think they, there probably will always be those people and they always have value. Um, your desire to communicate or not your science, um, I suppose, is your business. But what will be really, really useful to developing a really, you know, diverse and interesting group of people that we call scientists 
is the fact that the present generation is being influenced by those people that are very good at communication that are doing yeah. it. The- yeah, I'm curious to ask you this question. I think that's a good point also, but as you're teaching physics, how do you see your mission when you're delivering this content? Because I think you are now making an, in your Twitter, like your kind of information in a fun way. And also in the class, how, how you make sure that you're delivering your thoughts and your ideas to the student? Because to be honest, I have to be honest with you, when I'm in high school, I think I enjoyed a lot better. When I go to maybe in academia, it was kind of boring sometimes. I'm sorry, but that's reality. But, uh, and it's rare to find um, this teacher that spark your imagination. Yeah, it can have, play a significant role in your future. And uh, I, I have, I remember vividly some teachers, I still remember how they are fascinating in laying this rule. So how, how do you take this mission about, what, what are your techniques about that? Well, I think my, um, my mission is twofold. Yeah. The first thing I want to do is make sure that people have enough scientific understanding to make sense of the world around them. And that is for everybody. And sometimes I have to teach people things and they could quite rightly turn around and say, sir, when am I ever going to need to know about this in the future? And their future path is already decided they want nothing to do with this when they leave. You know, they want to go and become something else. And that is absolutely fine. However, we live in a world where the importance of science is highlighted every single day. And it's not just science, but it's also the ability to understand information. What is what does this graph show us? And there is no better example than the current coronavirus uh, pandemic. We're being shown statistics. We're being shown graphs. We're being shown all of these things which we need to make sense of. We also need basic understandings of how things work. There is people out there that swear blind that 5G um, phone signals Mm -hmm. and vaccines for coronavirus are somehow linked. Now, an understanding of um, microwaves, uh, the understanding of the electromagnetic spectrum, how they're using communication, how how the different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum interact with the human body, Mm-hmm. An understanding of that would very quickly make you realize that there is absolutely zero danger whatsoever of microwaves, unless you're in a microwave oven, of course. Um, however, uh, uh, you know, uh, also the, the, the danger of vaccines um, is unfounded. Vaccines save lives. The evidence is categorical. You don't have to be a professional scientist to appreciate that. And what is really important is for the sake of the safety and security of people that people have a basic way of spotting when information is false and the information about the danger of vaccines for example is a hundred percent false now no one um you know you don't need to wait for an official source to tell you that your background understanding of science should enable you to put that in and, and make those kind of evaluations with um things like twitter and with social media what we're now finding, and this was a, a quote from Jim Al-Khalili, he, he said uh, that Twitter is empowering uh, the uninformed. So people that don't know what they're talking about are getting this huge platform and are able to spread information. And this is where it cannot just fall on the science communicators. It needs to fall on every man and woman in the country. If they see things that are obviously incorrect and dangerously incorrect, then your, your opinion in that matter is just as valid as the other person. So maybe more so, why don't, why don't you tackle? Why don't you confront? Why don't you have that 
um, discussion and say, well, I don't think that's right. And my, my, um, my teacher, when I was 14, gave me the little bits of information that I needed to have yeah. this real debate. So giving everybody that background in physics is really important. But the mm -hmm. second thing, and this is really important to me, is I want to be that person that makes that journey possible to somebody that wants to go and do physics, engineering, mathematics in the future at university. So I need to, at the same time as giving everybody just what they need, I also need to tune into those people yeah. that need me to be something different. They need me to deliver the, the just the right questions just at the right time to develop their thinking. And they need just the right encouragement at just the right time to make them brave enough to make those um, steps that require a little bit of courage. And so for all of the boys and the girls that I teach, I'm always on the lookout for people that I think, you know, you are a person that would, could, could value this in future. And then trying to create things in the classroom that make almost uh, the unanswered questions, that make them go away and look it up, that make them want to find out in the very next thing. Mm -hmm. So my, my role as a teacher is twofold, is to, to bring everybody with me, but at the same time, find those scientists and develop them into somebody that is going to go on and mm -hmm. uh, become successful. That's really excellent point. But I, I, I'm curious to ask you in that case, do you think education in general maybe has, um, has a serious flaw, do you think? Because what you say, I think, is really missing. I don't think it's really common that to have this mentality, even in academia level. So I don't know what you said, why we have this problem. Because you say something that every individual, I think, society have to be at level of awareness what we're doing. But I don't think that something is really achieved yet. I'm not being pessimistic here, but that's reality. We still have biases and blind biases and we don't, and that's make a problem in our society. So why do you think we don't have, where does problem come from? Do you think the education system in general? Because I think it's all about mentoring. I think when you have the childhood affects you, how we will be in the future. And when you have a teacher that, or the mentor can affect in your life. Do you think we have an issue how we can make education in a better way. What you thought about education and mentoring as well? Well, I think, we, why are we not there yet? I think there's, um, there's, there's always going to be people that, that reject the mainstream um, idea on, because of the fact that it's mainstream. So if there's a particular idea like um, landing on the moon, for example, um, what, there are people that believe that there was no landing on the moon and no amount of evidence can persuade them otherwise, even though um, uh, it's exceptionally well documented and there's no other way they could have done it. So a scientist looks at that and go, all of the evidence points towards the moon landing and there's no evidence that can't be unexplained um, that suggests otherwise. So therefore, I personally accept the decision that I think it actually happened based on the the majority of the evidence and i think with with science um you know there comes a point where you have to accept that that is true or it is not and a scientist would hope to look at the the, the main body of evidence um but i think that some people are believe that that the evidence has, has been faked somehow that the evidence itself is not trustworthy and so this is where we have the real issue scientists believe in evidence. Evidence is evidence. It's irrefutable. We refer to it in terms of it being um, something that is, uh, you know, 
without question, you cannot question mm. evidence or something. Evidence in the court of law, for example, is exactly what it sounds like. It is something that you, you know, it has to fit into a certain context. It is possible to fake evidence. That is mm. true. Scientific evidence, it is possible to fake evidence in a court of law. But at the same time, it is very, very difficult to convincingly fake evidence. And if you have lots of evidence for something, there's no way you could create enough convincing evidence for it. A very good example is the theory of evolution. Evolution um, is a theory of, uh, the, the, of animals slowly changing generation by generation as a result yeah. of natural selection. Now, every single new animal that we find or new plant when we find it, there's the potential that something about that could, uh, you know, be evidence against the theory of evolution. And with every animal that we have found, we have never, ever found that something about it goes against the theory of evolution. And so we can feel really secure that every single piece of evidence that we have found backs evolution and we have not found anything in any of the animals and plants that we're already aware of but also in those ones that we are newly finding that seems to contradict it. And so therefore we can have a lot of confidence in it. We can say that is, that is true. Um, so there will always be conspiracy theorists out there and people, the, they hear something, they accept it as it is. They perhaps don't have that background to have an in-depth uh, knowledge and understanding behind it. And so there is the potential that they could um, uh, accept it without understanding it. And I think the, the message to everybody is you are of course free to believe anything you want to, that you have that freedom. But what is important is, is that with that freedom comes a responsibility to, to do the research. It, it steps up a notch when you become somebody that in a public arena is speaking about things. That responsibility to speak only about those things, which, um, you know, you have knowledge of. Like, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't want to sit here and tell you everything, uh, the nuanced understanding of, of computer science, for example, because it is outside of my knowledge. Yeah. And so what I would have to do is, is hold my hands up and say, I don't know. I don't mm -hmm. know about that. But what we're seeing at the moment is the mass social media is giving people a platform to speak about things of which they don't really know. And what I would say to those people is, is to pause before you retweet, pause before you um, yeah. talk about it, to acknowledge the limitations in your own understanding. Um, mm -hmm. From the point of view, uh, you know, of somebody that, that has been through education, has degrees and a doctorate and that sort of thing, I'm I think one of the most powerful things that I can do is actually point out the limitations of my own understanding about something and say, well, that is outside of what I know about. So therefore I'm not going to, I can't contribute to this other than from what I know. So there is um, important work to do for all scientists and all people with um, any kind of knowledge and understanding of science to encourage it as a way of understanding the world and a way of engaging with new and um, interesting ideas. And you said um, about a mentor, like mentoring in, in the process. I think um, the, the, more, the more wide, the, the influence of one person on another, speaking mm -hmm. more generally, we use the term role models an awful lot. Somebody 
that for some uh, reason makes you think that you could do that. And it might be as simple as um, somebody from your own sort of background, your own uh, gender, your own uh, ethnicity, your own religion, or any of those things. Sometimes it does require somebody to see somebody and go, you know, I want to do that. And it's, yeah. it's surprising how many people follow in the footsteps of their parents or make similar choices to their own parents. Now, for um, for those people, those people whose parents are doctors and their parents were doctors, then they've mm -hmm. well become doctors. But there are then those children that um, they don't fit the mold. You kind of either go follow the path of your parents or you go your own way. And at that stage, when they're at the key age of secondary school age, they're almost looking for people, looking for people that they can look at and think, I see my future in that person. I want to do something similar to what that person has done. And so it's, it's really important that within teaching um, and within uh, science communication, that we get the most varied, um, the most diverse collection of people standing there to be role models to the next generation. That's very interesting. I think you mentioned something. I think many students, uh, even sometimes when you maybe a doctor or engineer, and in the middle of your career, you figure out oh, that's not fulfilling for me. That's not my purpose. And you still, I think that's a tripping. You would try to do what others doing. And maybe you're right. You were passionate about something, but you figure out something greater than what you maybe in the middle of your career. I think that's really, we miss this kind of discussion in high schools that how you think about what you want, what's your purpose in your life. So I think that's something very interesting. But I would like to ask you, I think that's something, uh, because you said a lot of interesting thing about how you believe this theory and, and um, understanding about what have been done so far. I think that's a quote from uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the book, uh, Physics for People, um, uh, Astrophysics for People in Harry. I think he said in the beginning of the preface book, uh, the universe under no obligation to make sense to you. I don't know what you think about that when you, you hear something like that. What does example for that you can relate? The universe is under no obligation to make, make sense, sense to you. That's, yeah, it's a very, a very well thought about um, thing yeah. to say. Um, the, well, here is a very good example. So Isaac Newton, he, um, he had a, a belief. It was based on his own beliefs in the significance of the number seven. He thought there are seven days in the week. Seven appears in many, many different things. Seven must be a really significant number. Mm -hmm. and so when he was first splitting light up into the various different colors of the spectrum. Now, of course, it's all one blended color in the spectrum. Our ability to distinguish and interpret that these colors are different from each other is entirely perceptional. It's in our own heads. We can characterize that light of a certain wavelength is yellow or mm -hmm. and when he looked at all of those colors of light the colors of light that we can see in the rainbow he thought that the number seven is so significant that he considered that there should be seven colors in that rainbow red orange yellow green blue but then he kind of ran out there was violet was the next color and so he put an extra color in there which was the color that he called indigo and indigo is a color that is almost impossible to distinguish. Have you ever walked around and thought that is a fantastic indigo car? You know, it's just not a color. Um, to him, he put that in there 
to make the universe fit his preconceptions. And I think what we have to be very careful to do is to make sure that we see the universe as it is rather than how we want it to be. Mm -hmm. So the universe as it is, based on the evidence that we see, um, we've got to remember that we have a very specific viewpoint. Our viewpoint, there's, there's many different limitations that come from our viewpoint, that we have a single pair of eyes and they're mounted at the top of our heads and that we are about, you know, just less than two meters high and we're all stuck to the surface of this ball of rock that is near this sun. Many, many times in science, we've read unnecessary significance in certain things. Uh, there was a, a law that described the position of the planets around the sun called Bode's law. And we thought that there was great mathematical significance in where the planets were placed. And it turns out that it, they follow that law by chance. We've seen other solar systems that just do yeah. not follow that law. And we almost wanted the universe to be perfect and have some great symmetries in it. And this is where it comes back to one of uh, Richard Feynman's quotes. And he, he basically said, it, it doesn't matter how beautiful or elegant your equation, if it doesn't match the data, then it's wrong. And, and one of the things that we are, are presently doing with our physics and the, the, the areas in which we're developing it at the moment is we're trying to find forever more elegant solutions for things. Now, within physics, we, we search for this thing called beauty or elegance within our equations. When they become really simple, really symmetric, really straightforward, we think mm -hmm. we them that that is a very nice equation. It's so much better than a great big complicated equation that's difficult to think about. And so we are constantly seeking something that has this um, elegance to us. But the problem is that elegance itself is perceptional to ourselves. It may well be that the universe is governed by laws of physics that are completely sprawling, complicated, horrible messes, rather than something simplistic and beautiful and perfect like we imagine it to be. We've got to be careful that within our physics, we're not making the same mistakes that were present um, in the thinking of the, let's say, the Catholic Church in the 16th century, that the, the universe was pristine and unchanging and that, that it was completely understandable by very, very simple laws. If it turns out the universe is not understandable by very, very simple laws, then we can't be upset by that. And we also have to accept the fact that the actual laws that govern the universe may be completely beyond the understanding of a human brain, that we can... Uh, we can interpret the edges of those laws. We can, we can understand certain relationships in situations that are straightforward, but what ties them together? The grand unified theory that, that potentially is all of the laws of physics acting together as we think they must have done at the beginning of time. Um, well, it, it may well just be that that is beyond the, the imagining capacity of a human being. And so... Yeah. At that point, we could, why don't we just abandon it and say, well, it's a bad job. We've learned as much as we can. Let's, let's think about something else. Yeah. This is where something very interesting is occurring. And this is something that Stephen Hawking suggested would be a major development in physics. And that is the power of the computer. Now, the computer, in some ways, can do things that our brains can't. The processes a computer can do. Um, all across the world, there are supercomputers running simulations of galaxies colliding and using yeah. thousands of bits of data to, um, you know, deal with 
situations that are very, very complicated. And it's through studying the very complicated that we're now actually making advances in physics, that we made our equations as simple as possible uh, to understand them. But what we're now finding is they're as simple as we can make them. And the advances are happening in the complex physics that's on the outside. And that is what the computer is very, very good at. Will physics eventually completely leave the human brain? The developments of artificial intelligence would mm -hmm. an artificially intelligent computer be able to yeah. advance physics? Is the next Einstein um, presently a microchip under development? We yeah. don't know. I think you said also interesting. Where maybe I have a lot of question here. Maybe the first one is about the relationship between the mass and physics, because in the podcast was asked was a question: What is the most uh, simple and beautiful, profound equation? that inspired you in your work. If you can tell us what is the most simple and beautiful profound equation for you. Ooh, <laughs> that is a hard question. Um, uh, there's, well, there is a number, a number of very interesting equations. Mm -hmm. um, Maxwell's equations, the, equa the four equations that help us to understand the nature of light. And so mm -hmm. I think they are interesting in their significance because um, Maxwell with some very complicated mathematics was able to understand that the things that we interpret as magnetism are related to things that we would call electric fields. So the movement of charges changes this thing called an electric field that's around it. And that makes the other charged objects respond and feel forces as a result of that. So whenever we move electrons from one place to another, it changes the electric field. But now when we see that change occur, it also creates something known as magnetism. And what Maxwell realized was magnetism was caused by a rotation of an electric field rather than just a straight um, uh, transposition. It was the rotation of the field causes all of the effects that we know as magnetism, that, that together electricity or electric fields and magnetism are actually two parts of the same theory. And he united it into electromagnetism. He did the very first step in unifying our physics to produce a grand unified theory. And in doing so, he realized that understanding both magnetism and electricity together enable you to fully understand what light actually is. Mm -hmm. Light is a disturbance in the electric field, which induces a disturbance in the magnetic field at right angles to it the electromagnetic wave. And through his four equations, Maxwell was able to unify two areas of physics and give an explanation for an entirely apparently separate phenomena. And so the power of Maxwell's equations uh, make it uh, one of the best uh, mm. for me. But there's one more that I wanna say, because if you know, you've, you've, you've set me off now on my favorite equation, so there'll be no end to this, um, but Euler's identity, uh, e to the i pi, uh, is equal to negative uh, one. And this, this relationship here um, is a relationship that we need to actually describe some things happening in physics. So certain physics theories require the use of the, uh, the symbol I, which as a mathematician would tell you is actually an imaginary number. We find I by taking the square root of negative one and and for most people, they would think when they encounter this in maths, that this is entirely just uh, an exercise that mm -hmm. mathematicians like to do to, to fill their time. You know, it's entirely theoretical. It could, how could the universe have within its coding something as complex 
as imaginary numbers. And yet the universe does not work without them. And so I think that is one of the most profound. Euler himself used it as um, evidence for a creator of the laws of physics. He was a religious man. And he thought that the fact that there is laws of physics so complicated as involving imaginary numbers is, is evidence for that. Now you may choose to believe that or not, but the, the fact that the, the laws of physics do involve some of you know, our most complex mathematics that we as human beings can think of, it leaves you slightly in awe of the, the kind of majesty of the universe, that the, the physics behind it all is wonderfully simple, but also fantastically complex. And I think you could very happily spend a whole lifetime just trying to understand them better. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think maybe you can explain about about not on the podcast. You should start your own podcast, I think, in physics. <laughs> <laughs> and speak about this story because I think it's it's a really interesting story about uh, uh, physics and religion and especially some imaginary numbers. But I'm curious to ask you uh, about what something you think is very promising in physics. Uh, but still the community disagree or doesn't give much attention to it. Something is very promising, you think? Yeah. Well, okay, something that is, um, I suppose, controversial. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's lots of controversial things. That's the best thing about it, is the fact that it, it hasn't all been decided yet. You know, it hasn't, we haven't got to the very bottom of everything. And even, even things that are, you know, really quite straightforward, there's always people that, that may hold an, an opposite view. Um, things like Big Bang, the Big Bang as a theory, um, is, is widely held as um, the theory that explains the beginning of the universe, but it's still not widely understood what the Big Bang actually was, the development of the universe from a singularity. Um, you know, that is something that there are lots of different scientists that have very different interpretations. Roger Penrose, the famous mathematician that won the Nobel Prize this year, um, two years ago at Oxford, he was speaking to a group of mathematicians and he said um, that, of course, the universe did not begin from a single point. It began from a line. And so from his mathematical point of view, he imagined the universe coming out of like a big, like um, a ravine out of somewhere. You know, so his, his picture of it is different from how other people might see it, which is fantastic because it means that we still have these interesting ideas. Now, one thing that is controversial and, um, and Roger Penrose himself, in one of his more recent books, he describes uh, how he doesn't want to criticize this theory and mm -hmm. call it fanciful because he doesn't want to lose most of his friends who are theoreticians in this particular area of physics. Yeah. But the area that um, uh, is uh, rightly um, up for scrutiny is string theory. You see, um, when, when we looked at the scale of the universe, we realized that there was this really large scale uh, galaxies, the space, all of this sort of stuff. Um, Einstein really perfectly explained the physics um, of the universe on a large scale. His tensor algebra, looking at space time and, and how mass and energy affect um, you know, time and, and the properties of matter, really, really well explains the universe on a large scale. And then on the, the other side of things, we have um, the quantum realm. So the, the world that is very, very small, the size of atoms and smaller. Um, scientists like Heisenberg and Schrodinger 
um, and Max Planck, uh, and about 100 years ago now, mm-hmm. they got together and realized that there were laws of physics that could help them explain the universe on a very small scale. Now, they both work at their scales, but what we are struggling to do is find that they work in the intermediate scale where we are. And if they are correct, there should be a seamless transition from one into the other as we go through different scales. Um, And we haven't found that. So trying to understand uh, and unite all of the sciences, all of the physics can't happen until we understand how everything works on every single scale. Now, string theory was an idea that started to come about in the 1970s, that that it was an idea to find an explanation for why there are all of these different particles that we see in the universe, protons, neutrons, electrons, and a whole zoo of other particles that we are now detecting in particle uh, uh, colliders. There must be something really fundamental that makes this different to that. Mm -hmm. Came up with this idea that everything every single particle was maybe like a different harmonic vibration of a very small thing called a string. The nature of the string is unknown. We, one of the things that's really frustrating when you try to read about this is everything keeps getting referred to these strings and no one knows what they are. However, what, what we can see is that the appearance of an electron around an atom at a certain distance in a certain orbital is because uh, the electron is behaving as a wave and is perfectly going around the, the nucleus as a wave, a standing wave that enables it to exist. Now, mm-hmm. what if all of the particles we see are just waves of different frequency on the same fundamental thing that can vibrate, this thing called the string. And so from this basic idea, we've tried to find explanations um, for all of the particles we see. But the part where it becomes really interesting is where we take it further and we say from this model, this understanding, we should be able to predict things that we have yet to observe. So string theory made some predictions uh, about supersymmetry and spontaneous symmetry breaking that we then didn't actually observe when we made the Large Hadron Collider um, uh, to test those theories. And so what it seems to be is we've created a very, very large and very complex theory that at this point in time is not producing um, results that can verify it. It may still be correct, but at the same time, when we make predictions using it, those predictions turn out not to be true. So going back to uh, what Feynman said, it doesn't matter how beautiful the theory, if it doesn't support all by evidence, and it, it, we can't hold it to be true. Uh, there are other ideas. Um, uh, Carlo Rovelli, he, he's one of the uh, scientists that have the, uh, you know, he's quite important and quite knowledgeable in the area of physics that I suppose is the, the, the main rival theory to string theory, and it's called quantum loop gravity, and it's one of the most complex things I've ever read about, so <laughs> you will have to have him on the show if you want to know more about that, but basically it is here, it is in this, this great divide that we, we cannot even agree on the most basics of things because those basic things are so complex. Um, every time we open a new window on the universe, every time we open a new particle accelerator that can fire particles at each other at slightly higher energies, we're able to test things that we couldn't do before. And this is the whole point of science is we're not always looking to prove something we're actually looking for the evidence that it's wrong. 
it's actually you make a much bigger impact on science if you discover that the, the previous idea is wrong rather than you find evidence to suggest that it's right. So that's what you need to understand is that every scientist across the world is trying to disprove, is trying to find evidence, to find weakness. And for the purpose of, if they cannot do it, it actually makes the science stronger. So having that critical mindset that what is the weakness in this? What are the limitations of this idea? Is at a very basic level, what I'm trying to instill in all of my pupils in the class, understanding it, at its very basic level, what are the weaknesses of what has been presented to us? Um, and using scientific understanding then to, to put that into context and understand it. That's very interesting, yeah. And I think maybe the question here related is that we are closing and uh, we have a few questions, but I think this question related since you mentioned uh, about Einstein. And I think Einstein would hate it back in time by his peers. And if we ask, I ask you how we can enable how can enable more intellectually inclusive culture for different ideas, different approaches? And you figure out what is the weakness and what is the limitation. And, and you mentioned sometimes scientists sometimes on the academia is ego driven. So sometimes be taken personally, not objectively. So how do you think about having intellectually inclusive culture for different ideas? You accept or maybe have a, uh, enough inclusiveness in, in exposing different ideas different uh, perspective of the problems. Yeah, How do you okay, okay. well, I, I have actually Einstein on the wall behind me. This is a, <laughs> the room in which I'm sat is, is themed on Einstein's um, study in, in, in Bern. Um, yeah. Einstein was a celebrity. And I think uh, we, we probably must consider that separately, the, the, especially with things like social media, that scientists are getting a larger platform that one of the things that had previously happened was the same couple of scientists were being used by mainstream television companies again and again and again to be the face of science, which is okay because you, you gain the relationship with that person, they become a trusted person, and then you accept what they say more easily. But at the same time, it was the same faces again and again. Now, there's a much greater platform for people through their interaction with the world to actually raise their own profile and be a high-profile scientist. But the, the, the flip side of that is, is that that is not for everybody. Not everybody wants to be a celebrity. A lot of people are actually quite shy. A lot of people don't like attention in that sort of way. And what we must make science about is a place where everybody um, can feel welcome and can feel included. That you don't have to be an all singing, all dancing, um, wonderful public entertainer to be a scientist you could be a very different kind of scientist, completely neurodiverse to you know, other people. And I think, I think that is one of the most important things that we can encourage at this stage is that we need all kinds of people in science. With ego uh, and how we see ourselves, I think sometimes um, ego can create confidence. It's, it's quite possible that you can believe yourself to be right on something and that is what is needed in that moment. But sometimes uh, there can be a kind of anti-confidence, things like uh, imposter syndrome, that you don't think that you are like these other people or that you have a place. And I think generally speaking, where people feel imposter syndrome, it is not a fault of their own. I think you feel imposter syndrome in situations where you've not been made to feel welcome or included. And I think if people start feeling imposter syndrome where 
you work, then perhaps the culture of that place needs to be looked at. Because I think if people feel encouraged, they feel empowered, and they feel that their voice has value, and they no longer second guess themselves, they no longer question themselves, and they no longer think that, you know, my voice is not important, or my voice isn't worthwhile. And so giving everybody that 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 feeling that that, that they have something valuable to add um, is one of the most important things that we can do. And, and going back to the idea of being a mentor and showing leadership within science, um, it doesn't matter whether or not you are the, the head of physics at a university or whether or not you are um, a PhD student on their first day in academia, uh, all of us can lead by example. We are all leaders to each other. And if that leadership enables us to include people so that they don't feel that their voice has no uh, weight, that their voice um, is valued. Mm -hmm. That is leadership that we can go to work every single day with a determination to demonstrate. And I think the if there should be a change, I think the change has got to come from every single person, that there are problems structurally and there are problems, um, you know, culturally, but we ourselves have the power to make some of the most important changes and it's mm -hmm. how it's how we are with our fellow scientists and how we choose to be ourselves when we walk into that place of work i think that's really wise words and i think i hope this many people can grasp the idea of what you say if we have that we will be in a better place but yeah i really like this words so um, I would like to go again for your hobbies because I think that's something I really liked so much. I like aerospace and and you and your Twitter, you designing small prototype of aircraft. And I saw your pilot the first time <laughs> when I saw it, but I don't know what's your passion about building area like small airplanes and. Okay. Like that. Well, uh, okay, this is going to sound a bit loony, but all right. So the building small airplanes when I was. I don't know, about 12, 13, my dad bought me a small model airplane. I think me and my brother, we both were building these airplanes, airfix models, sticking them together. And yeah. on the one hand, I can now see that it, it's really good because you learn a little bit of history, you learn to recognize it, you learn fine uh, dexterity. It's a yeah. way of, you know, it's, it's a nice thing for people to do. And young people are so virtual these days that they, you know, they, they, should, they should have a go at making something. It's the first step in becoming an engineer is to yeah. physically glue something together and then realize you've made a terrible mistake. Um, and I, and this is a, like a philosophical thing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm now 37 years old. I'm way past the age where I should be making <laughs> toys. But yeah. what I realized, and this was a grand realization when I was about 35, is to find happiness in life, to find like meaning and happiness in life, you need to kind of reconnect with the things you enjoyed doing when you were 12, before you became distracted by what you felt you should be or what you felt you should be interested in. And I realized that I really enjoyed doing that. And so I went and bought one online and found that I still really enjoyed doing it. Of course, I challenge myself. I go to the next level of making these things. And I adorn my classroom with, um, rockets from various parts of the space race. Um, and I just find uh, that for me, it's very relaxing, it's very interesting, it's challenging, but it makes me happy. And I think it doesn't matter what you're into, if it makes you happy, go and do it. Well, I think that's something, you know, I think many people struggle with this point. You mentioned something very interesting. Life is distracting us. And when you, what something 
makes me happy when I kid and doing that. I can feel this feeling, you know, it makes you fulfilled and relieves the stress and distraction and fast uh, life happening around. But yeah, I th think uh, that's something very interesting. Yeah. And I think also you visit also like show for aircraft, like show aircraft shows, you think you go to the Yes, yeah. Uh, air shows um, in, the, in the United Kingdom, there's, there's, well, not right now during coronavirus, but there's air shows happen all across yeah. the, the country um, and enthusiasts for aviation get together and they see the aircraft uh, put through their paces. Yeah. Um, and for me, my, my interest in, in aircraft, aviation, rockets and aerospace, it's mm -hmm. all just a big continuum of interest. And, yeah. and I think if you could choose to be anything in life, the thing that will make you happiest is to choose to be interested. And I, I generally find that I don't know whether or not this, I was destined for this from the very beginning or whether or not I've actually actively cultivated and fed this, but I'm genuinely interested by everything. And uh, so everything around me, I find interesting. I find stimulating, I find curious. And so I find that my brain is really well engaged making sense of the world around me and then you know yeah. finding those things that feed my passions yeah that's interesting yeah so the last two question is what is the most important quality you have gained while being in your process teaching physics and also your hobbies that you're doing what is the important quality you have gained and have to maintain most hmm. important quality uh, human quality i important I, quality yeah yeah. I think, well, in, in, interest is, is a really important one, the one we just said. Um, but then again, there are other things as well. There is patience is really important when um, you want something to happen, but perhaps those things are beyond your immediate control. Uh, the extent to which you can influence the direction of your own life. And it can feel very frustrating if you know what you want to do, but it just doesn't seem to work. And I think... Mm -hmm. I think it requires a kind of resilience of person. You've got to pick yourself up and you've got to carry on. You've got to try again. And it's, it's remarkable where you get to whilst you're trying. You may not get to where you were heading, but you get to somewhere else and that place is interesting. So I think that quality of being able to pick yourself up, being able to um, carry on is, is something. I think all people experience um, knocks in their confidence, in the direction of travel, but ultimately uh, the important thing is not that we get knocked down, but that we pick ourselves back up and we pick each other back up and we help each other to continue and, uh, and realise that in very many ways we're all in this together as a species, as colleagues in a work environment, as a situation, the teacher and pupil, we're all in the same situation and we can genuinely help each other. And that is something that uh, that help can just change the direction of that person's life at that point. Mm -hmm. And what's your aspiration? If you can just imagine what you aspire to have in your life, something. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know about career ambition, it all depends on what happens. I would, I would, if Elon Musk is listening to this, I'd love to be the first physics teacher on Mars. Just send me. I'm ready. I'll go. Um, however, I don't know how likely that is. Um, but I, I very much enjoy doing what I'm doing. I enjoy spending yeah. time with young people. I think there is an energy in young people. Uh, yeah. um, young people can be very, very challenging, but they're they're hardwired to be so. The 
the process of a young person becoming independent of their own parents requires them to go through a rebellious phase. And we are entrusted to look after these uh, people whilst they are going through that rebellious phase and they rebel against authority and they rebel against being told what to do and they rebel, all of these things, but they all come out at the other end having developed into um, essentially adults, people uh, ready to take on the world, to find their own way, equipped with the skills that we've given uh, in class. And I think I wouldn't want to be anywhere else other than being a part yeah. of that process. That's uh, inspiring, yeah. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you as a person professionally and was a life changing? Um, well, my physics teacher, when I first, when I was doing physics at A-level, mm -hmm. um, he, he had a look. I wasn't getting the best grades to start with, and I couldn't understand why. And he had the, um, he, <laughs> he, he said to me, he had a look at my paper, and he said, you're, you're writing down what you want to say, but you're not actually answering the question. And so he said, and it, it was advice that stuck in my mind really, really clearly. Mm -hmm. He wrote on the on the board. He says uh, he wrote he wrote never mind the and then he, there was a swear word there. I don't know what if your audience can say that, but it was a BS. It was a never mind the the and um, and basically it was shocking. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? And he says you're just writing all this stuff, and it's not what they need. It's not what they're asking for. You've got to train yourself to to be and to give at that moment when asked what it is that's expected. You've got to meet the expectation, in this case of the exam board with your answers, but I think that is the case everywhere. If you're expected to be this, then be that. And that professionally is really, really good advice. Find out what the expectations of you are and endeavor to be that person. If you fall down and you don't make it, you can at least turn around and, and say, well, I was trying to be. Mm -hmm. I was trying to meet the expectation. The, of, of, of me in this role. And I think also that had such power over me that he said that. Because writing a swear word on the board as a teacher is risky business. But what he demonstrated was actually there was trust there. There was a great deal of trust that I wasn't going to go running off to the headmaster and you know um, report what had happened. And in that, I realized that this teacher was really on my side. This teacher was prepared to take a risk for me. And so I it really, really made a difference. And now over 20 years later, it still stands out in my mind as the most powerful message I ever received at school. And uh, I, I haven't done that myself. I haven't felt brave enough to write that on one of my own boards yet, but, um, but who knows? <laughs> There's always yeah, it's, it's very profound, you know, it sounds easy, but it's not easy that you have this kind of answering, even in your life, if you want something, expect something, and how you have the answer for what you want. It's not easy. And I think that's really profound uh, message. Yeah, I really <laughs> enjoyed it. And uh, I think you have to start a podcast for yourself in physics. And that's, uh, yeah, I hope you can reach more people. Uh, and, um, and thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you.